Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of the R Squared Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Levy. Today's guest is Ken Pomeroy from KenPom.com. Ken joins us to talk about some of the unique statistical offerings at his site and some of the differences between data sets at the NBA and NCAA levels. So, Ken, you are... uh sort of the one of the old guard for uh, basketball analytics your site's been around for quite a long time um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you first got started um, uh, working with basketball statistics yeah it was uh, you know kind of a non-traditional background although I'm not, I guess I'm not exactly sure what a traditional background is a lot of people <laughs> you know come from come from odd you know walks of life or whatever but uh, you know when I was in college the analytics field wasn't even a field you know it wasn't even a thing unless you or Dean Oliver, and he, he sort of had the, the foresight to invent it. Um, uh, you know, someone like me, I didn't even consider it a possibility. Uh, so, you know, I kind of went out in the real world and did my own thing and uh, eventually, you know, started my site just kind of uh, as a hobby. But it was really in response to what was going on uh, in the baseball world where there was lots of, uh, I thought, fresh insight um, about baseball using analytics. And there was really nobody doing that for college basketball. And it, it took me a good, you know, six months to a year to kind of take the plunge. Like I kept expecting to see somebody else, you know, do that kind of stuff. And then I finally was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I didn't expect to, uh, you know, make it a living eventually or, or have any, you know, real measure of influence. But I thought, you know, there'd probably be a handful of people that'd be interested in it because there's, there's no competition. Um, and that's really where things got started and started writing about the game and then realizing that, you know, the statistics we had were pretty lacking and kind of, looking around at, at how to improve that and, and borrowing some things from people and, and putting the site together and, and things kind of grew from there. Um, so your, your site, KenPom.com, is known for a couple different things. You were um, you can find them a few other places now, but you were one of the first sites that had some sort of uh, basic advanced statistics at the player level, so things that you could find um, for the NBA, like steal percentage and block percentage and things like that. You had some of those on your site. Um, and then you also have uh, some, some really uh, detailed uh, ratings and rankings of all the teams in college basketball. And then you've got your blog, obviously, where you're doing some sort of like ongoing research stuff so what were some of the first things that you were diving into as you were getting started i uh, you know the very first thing was just it sounds you know ridiculously simple now but back then a lot of people didn't know any better it was just looking at uh you know offensive defensive efficiency for teams uh looking at their tempo uh you know that was really the, the first thing and uh a lot of that you know initial research made sense you know past the, the eye test or the last test or whatever you want to call it um, you know, I think the first time I actually, you know, calculated like uh, efficiency was at the end of the 2002 season. I didn't share it with anyone. I didn't share it with the soul. I didn't really even start posting that stuff on my site until two years later. But 
Um, when I dove into it in 2002, you know, like Gonzaga had the, the best offense. You know, not adjusted for schedule, but um, they had the best offensive efficiency. And you're like, well, yeah, actually, you know, you look at the numbers, like, you know, their shooting's amazing. You know, they don't turn the ball over. You know, it kind of makes sense. Um, and that was kind of eye-opening. I think, you know, like the early stuff, you know, looking at that kind of thing, looking at eventually getting into the player statistics, it took, took a, you know, kind of a couple years more. Um, and just kind of, you know, getting the low-hanging fruit and seeing that it made sense. And um, that really, you know, I think gave me motivation that, you know, I was kind of on the right path and that uh, this was a, a fruitful endeavor. Uh, looking back sort of at the history of your site, would you say there was like a, was there like a specific point or a specific season that was kind of like a flashpoint where you felt like what you were doing really caught on, where the, the traffic jumped, people started paying more attention? Uh, you know, it's, it's been a gradual increase year by year. Uh, I mean, the turning points are always when coaches start mentioning it, and especially early on. You know, there was a fair amount of resistance to you know, newer stats from people who had been in the game a while, you know, mainly, mainly I'd say media people who had covered the game a while. And, you know, we're really like, why, why do I need these new stats? I'm doing fine with what I got. Um, but then, you know, they'd go to a press conference and a coach would, would mention it. And, uh, you know, that would give it kind of instant credibility. And then it was kind of on the onus of the, of the beat reporter to, to do a little research and, and figure out, you know, what these advanced stats were. So it's those moments that, uh, that have really helped. I mean, from a public perspective, you know, a lot of it is based on, and this is completely uh, unfair, I would say, but a lot of it's based on, like, you know, how well do you predict things? And sometimes, you know, you know there's a lot of reasons <laughs> in, in what we're doing. So sometimes you're going to predict things well, and sometimes you're not. And uh, and certainly the, the 2010 season when, when Duke won the national title, you know, they weren't going to the tournament. They weren't really a heavy favorite. You know, they were probably the sixth or seventh choice by odds makers, maybe a little bit better than that. But it's only about the public. It was like they weren't even on the radar. You know, they'd come off a couple, like, disappointing tournaments. And they played well that year, but people, for some reason, just didn't believe in them. And, you know, they were ranked first in my system. They were ranked first, actually, in a lot of analytical systems. And, you know, they eventually won the title. And I think that that gave the work that I do and that others do a lot of credibility as well. That's one of the things that I'm, I'm uh, sort of most fascinated by in in thinking about the difference between like college basketball and NBA basketball, where um, sort of the nature of the college game, everything sort of builds to this tournament where it's just a series of one-off elimination games, and it seems like there's so much more. Um, there's so much more inherent variability in in the outcome because things are decided by these single games, you know, whereas in the NBA, you know, the the best team is much more likely to actually win the championship. Um, and I'm wondering about how you deal with that, especially when, when so much of your work is these, is these team ratings and um, you know, you may have the most uh, you, you may have the most accurate picture of how good these teams are relative to each other, but then they go into the tournament and, and there's these upsets and it's sort of, you know, uh, uh, it's almost like the the system is set up to sort of like you know counteract whatever the work is that you do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like, I think if you talk to most college basketball fans, they they'd rate like the NCAA tournament as you know far and away you know the best part of the season. <laughs> I mean, that used to be how I was, but as you know, I've gotten into to, to what I do more and more. You know, the tournament is still my favorite part of the season, but it's like pretty comparable like conference tournaments i'd say have almost like pulled even and mm-hmm. say like 
the regular season, I actually, you know, enjoy quite a bit. Like, there's not a huge difference for me between the tournament and the regular season in terms of enjoyment. And and part of it is because, you know, of what you say. I mean, you, you kind of have to recognize that the tournament, it's not a total crapshoot. I mean, a good team ends up winning the tournament, you know, pretty much every year. But uh, but there are, you know, there's, there's one-off occasions where uh, a team wins or loses. And there's, you know, mind you, a small percentage, but still a percentage of the of the population that, you know, takes that result as some sort of validation of some larger point that you really can't validate with one 40 minute game. And, uh, and that does make things in the tournament, you know, kind of following it and appreciating it a little bit more frustrating. Mm-hmm. And and then there's the, the sample size, so to speak. Like, so for fans, <clears throat> you know, if you have the 12th best team in your ratings, win the, win the, the tournament, you know, that might not be a huge outlier. The 12th best team in the country in college basketball is still, you know, uh, maybe elite and a championship contender, but the 12th best team in the NBA is, you know, average and, you know, fighting to get in the playoffs. Right. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. Although, you know, the 12th best team wins the tournament, people sort of think that, I mean, the, the, the big issue is that people think you should have been able to predict that, you know, like when, I mean, the biggest example I can think of is when BCU made the final four, um, you know, they were, uh, you know, like 70, 70th or something in my system going to the tournament and, uh, you know, they get to the final four and, you know, they, they barely made the tournament. I mean, with a different selection committee, they wouldn't even have been picked. Um, and people are like, you know, well, why, you know, why can't you predict that? And, it's a great question. I mean, maybe we should, you know, explore answers to that instead of saying, instead of looking at it like, well, we should be able to predict that. Like, no, that's, that's probably a little bit unreasonable. So how do you handle that, uh, that sample size and, um, so the issue of sample size, the issue of sort of variability of, of the level of competition between leagues and then the fact that, um, you know, you get you get a small sample of teams playing each other across leagues. You know, the out of conference um, schedules. Whereas in the NBA, every every team plays each other at least twice, um, and sometimes even more. Um, so when you're building your ratings, how do you how do you account for for um, you know the fact that you're dealing with 350 some odd teams and and you know dramatically different levels of competition? Yeah, the out of conference stuff is probably the, the most challenging and I, I don't have a, a great answer for you. I mean, you know, all the teams ultimately they, they become connected. So, you know, you can get a chain from the 350th best team to the, the first best team and, you know, two, usually two games, maybe three games at the most. So, um, so that kind of helps solve that problem. Uh, you know, dealing with uh, uh, differing schedules and things like that. Um, the, the conference schedule strength is, is a problem because not only do, you know, teams only play 10 or 12 non-conference games, but they uh, they don't really play any non-conference games after about January 1st. So, you know, from January 1st until the beginning of the NCAA tournament, teams are playing within their own conference. They're very insulated. And to my knowledge, there's no way to account for a situation where, like, the teams in a conference have improved over, you know, those two or three months where they're isolated. They've improved more than, say, relative to a, another conference. Um, that is something that I think is – practically impossible to assess. And so, uh, so you get to the NCAA tournament and these teams emerge and then, you know, they kind of fan out in the outside world again and play non-conference games. Um, and, you know, you see some surprises, you see some conferences fall on their face sometimes. And, um, you know, it's a surprise to, to most people when that happens, but you kind of wonder if there was a way to assess, you know, did this conference actually materially, like did most of the teams 
actually get worse during the season or not improve as much as the rest of the world. Um, if we could detect that, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a surprise. But uh, that's probably, the, to me, the biggest challenge and something that I, I don't think there's a way to solve. Um, so the other thing is you've been doing this for, you know, more than 10 years. And over that time, um, the, the, the trend of, um, you know, players moving from the NCAA to the NBA, younger and younger players staying for shorter and shorter amounts of time as there's more sort of like roster turnover at the college level, more and more one, one and dones, especially with like the elite players, how much extra, um, sort of variability do you think that's that's added into into your work over time? Uh, maybe not too much. You know, the, I mean, the one thing that I started doing really not that long ago, like five years ago, was, uh, you know, start doing preseason predictions and preseason ratings. So to have some sort of like prior in the system uh, early in the season, uh, you know, before that, I just started zero. And, you know, teams just took their stats as, as they came. And it took probably, you know, six or seven weeks before there was really much meaning in the ratings. Uh, because it takes, you know, three weeks to begin with just to have all those teams get connected and understand who's better than who just looking at the current season. Um, so, you know, the preseason ratings attempt to uh, account for some of that turnover. I mean, it does look at roster turnover, but, you know, ultimately what you find is you can get really close to the right answer just looking at kind of recent performance. And, I mean, it kind of makes sense. You know, when you look at where the top players are going, yeah, you know, you have the – the kind of the rare case this year where like LSU and, and Cal are getting um, really high level prospects. But for the most part, you know, they're going to the same places, you know, they're going to the, the teams that, that played well the last two or three years. Um, and so it's not, uh, you know, too hard to start with a, a decent ranking before the season, even given that, um, you know, there is more roster turnover now among the top teams than there was, you know, say 10 years ago. Um, one of the, have you looked at um, have you looked at ever like projecting players out of high school into college? I know uh, Lane Vasher, one of our writers in Nylon Calculus, had some fun uh, sort of half serious, half trolling people uh, a few weeks ago because he released a set of NBA draft prospect projections that were based on incoming freshmen this year. So it's based on just you know like uh, all star tournaments and prep play and stuff like that. Is that something that you've looked at at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, in the, in the, I'm going to be way too honest here, but I really think like that's the next frontier of analytics at the college level. I mean, you know, in the college game, unlike the one difference between the college and the NBA is that all, all the new players are basically free agents. So, you know, if you, if you want this player on your team, you, know, you basically just have to get that player to agree to play for you and, and you're good. Um, and with, you know, now you have this proliferance of, uh, uh, elite AAU events where they're keeping stats. You know, this has been going on for like five years. I mean, there's a, a decent, uh, you know, trove of data out there to, to be analyzed and uh, used for projection. Um, uh, Drew Cannon, who's now uh, with the Celtics, um, was starting to do that before he, he got snapped up. And, uh, you know, I think he was just working with like one or two years of data. But, but now there's, you know, a legitimate data set, you know, that you could use, I think, to, to make some good decisions. And obviously for, you know, teams like Kentucky and Duke, that's pretty useless because they're just, you know, you can identify who the top players are and you don't need stats to help you out. But for some of these programs and conferences who, you know, they traditionally struggle, you know, traditionally in the bottom half of the conference year in, year out, uh, I think there's, you know, it's some good work to be done there uh, to kind of find uh, hidden gems. So um, it's definitely a project I would like to work on. I've never, I haven't found the time the last couple of years to do it, but uh, if somebody's not already doing it, 
Um, I have a feeling it won't take long before it happens. Um, so one of the other things that I'm really curious about is the difference in uh, data sets between the NBA and the NCAA. And I know, um, like, like specifically, um, a, a lot of the work in the past you know, seven, eight years in the NBA has been about analyzing play-by-play data um, to to get lineup statistics, get unit statistics. From there, you can build all these, the, the different plus-minus metrics that are rolled out. Um, and in the NCAA, that stuff is uh, is not present for every school, for every player. And if it is, there's often a, a higher level of inconsistency, right? Because there's that thing where the play-by-play logs are actually built by a human, um, you know, watching the game and logging those things and, um so um, I'm, I'm wondering how you deal with that. Is there uh, is there a set of data that you would like? You know, if there was something that that they could get a little more consistent, and you could sort of get a full data set with. Well, you know, there's, there's two ways to look at this. So one is comparing what the NCAA has to the NBA, and if, if you do that, you're going to be disappointed. And the other way is to compare what the NCAA has to what it had. You know, when I started out like 10 years ago. And, and the play-by-play play thing is interesting because, you know, now it actually is surprisingly standardized. I mean, the play-by-play is not as descriptive as it is in the NBA, but it's largely – it has largely been standardized for, um, you know, all teams and all games. Uh, obviously, the quality of it is, is not the same. You know, you have people that aren't – maybe aren't getting paid or getting paid very little to, to keep the stats, and, and uh, they're not uh, probably trained like people in the NBA are, but – because um, I thought one of the big differences between the play-by-play data for the NBA and the NCAA was that not all not all NCAA play-by-plays included shot distance, um, and so like I know Austin Clemens who built our shot charts at, at Nylon Calculus a few years ago, um, he was able to build NCAA shot charts, but he you know was sort of upfront about like this is a partial data set you know for some of these teams only half their games do I actually have shot data for? Yeah, I don't know how that shot data gets into the play-by-play sometimes. So there's, it's definitely not like the actual official NCAA play-by-play that is done with a standard set of software at each location does never includes the shot chart, never includes shot distance. Um, <laughs> it's added by a third party, I'm pretty sure. And so it only is available for, uh, I think, key, you know, certain conferences that it's available for, um, just the top conferences. So uh, that's, that is true. That would be a limitation. But, you know, for doing things like, like lineup data. I mean, okay, the substitution data sometimes is a little wacky and there are errors in it, but for the most part, you can compute lineup stats if you're so inclined. It, you know, we get into the sample size issue in college where the competition is rough for a few games and you're only playing 40 minute games and you're only playing, you know, 40 games a season at most. So when is that data ever useful? But you could actually um, create some lineup data. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with the play by play. You obviously can't do the stuff that you can do. Um, in the NBA, looking at the shot clock and possession length, you know, I, I cobble together some stuff on possession length, but I certainly wouldn't trust it to determine, you know, what's a team's field goal percentage between, you know, 10 and five on the shot clock, like that kind of information you can't get from the play by play. But, uh, you know, looking at it from, from where we were at 10 years ago, when I had to like write a script to kind of crawl schools, web pages and, and parse play by play that way to now where there's the NCAA actually does have a standard repository for that data. Um, we've actually come, come quite a long way. 
So what would you like to see next? I mean, um, I know uh, SportView, uh, what is it, like 10 schools, I think, have contracts with, with SportView and have their cameras in the arena, and obviously it would be unlikely that that stuff is ever made public. But, uh, you know, is there somewhere in between that you, you wish was being tracked, you wish was, was publicly available? Yeah, I mean, the, the player tracking data would be great, but as I say, it's probably – I do think there will be a day where, you know, like a conference buys that or something and, and some of the data becomes public, but – I mean, having, you know, at this point, having like a shot clock data in the, in the play-by-play, you know, would be a, a great improvement or, or having all the shots charted to be a great improvement. But the reality is, you know, if you ever do get that data, it's only going to be for uh, a certain amount of teams, which would be fine. It's better than what we have mm-hmm. now. So, you know, I wouldn't be complaining at all if that's how it went. But um, uh, beyond that, I mean, it's I, I, realistically, it's hard to see, you know, what the next level is because there's, you know, so many teams with varying athletic budgets that, uh, you know, you'll never see, I don't think you'll see like something beyond what we have in play by play standardized across the country. Um, thinking about the sport view stuff and about how, um, it seems like it's an obvious competitive advantage that some schools have the budgets to, um, you know, to invest in, in a massive tool like that. And probably the schools that have the budgets to pay into sport view are the schools that recruit the top talent anyway. Um, but, but thinking about analytics is, do you feel like that is a place where mid-major schools, smaller schools, schools that maybe are at a recruiting disadvantage have a, have a way to close the gap? Uh, I mean, obviously, keeping in mind that <laughs> talent is the biggest uh, yeah. distinguishing feature between good teams and bad teams, um, you know. But is is there a place where 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 the marginal advantages of of being invested in analytics could could make a difference for a team? I mean, I think the limitation on that is is finding the people to analyze the data. You know, as you guys are well aware, I mean, it, the, the player tracking data just you know it just doesn't fall out of a tree and give you answers. I mean, you have to, you have to analyze it and you have to have some people who are smart about analyzing that stuff, you know, to get good information out of it. I mean, that's the, the, so the one pitfall, I mean, the the data could be great, but if you're misusing it, then you're completely neutralizing whatever advantage you might have. And I think, I still think for probably, you know, 300, 351 schools out there, probably for like 345, you know, they don't really understand the value of having a really good analyst. Um, they don't understand the possibility of misusing the data. And, and you know, so it takes a special, it takes a special, you know, situation where, you know, yeah, mid-major school could get this data and they also could have somebody who's running the program who understands that, you know, we need somebody really intelligent uh, to analyze this data in order to gain an advantage. Um, if, if setting aside sport view, but thinking at a more simplistic level with data, um, I mean, go to Sloan every year and there's, you know, a couple hundred college kids there who are interested in sports analytics and, and, you know, want to work in the field and with varying levels of, of technical expertise, um, you know, uh, should, should collegiate basketball programs be, you know, recruiting, you know, talent out of the, the statistical departments and the economic departments as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one thing, you know, when, when a coach comes to me and they're like, hey, you know, you know, anybody that, uh, you know, can help us with analytics or some coach, especially like a D2 coach, you know, uh, they'll they'll come to me and they'll be like, you know, I want to compute these stats for my conference or whatever, but I really don't have the time. Like, when are you going to start doing this? And I just say, you know, there's got I mean, there's got to be a student at your school. I don't care what school you're at, whether it's 
specialize in technical matter or not. Like, there's got to be a student that's willing to help the basketball team and, and has some, you know, interest in, in, in math and, and, and would be a good fit for you and could do this stuff. Uh, and I'm, I think, you know, a fair amount of schools get that. And, you know, you look at, like, when they're hiring, like, managers or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll find a guy who, um, you know, is interested in analytics. So there's some of that going on, but there certainly could be more of that going on. I mean, that's, you know, obviously these schools can't hire a full-time analytics position or they can't have an analytics staff, certainly. But they do have the advantage of having, you know, kind of these bright young minds who, uh, you know, uh, are there for cheap labor uh, to help them. <laughs> and uh, my sense is that not enough of that is going on, but there is some of that going on. Well, I mean, because teams often have graduate assistants, right, who help with coaching and, and uh, you know, equipment and things like that. So it seems like it would be a natural extension to just add another graduate assistant who happens to specialize in, in statistics or economics or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the graduate assistant is, you know, it is a paid position. So maybe yeah. not paid very much, but it is a paid position. So, um, yeah, certainly there's there's no limit to how many people you can you can hire to, to help the program as long as they're not doing on-the-court coaching, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, whether it's a grand, graduate manager or a graduate assistant or, a, or an actual, you know, student manager, I mean, uh, you know, any of those things are, are possible. Um, so moving from the general into the specific, I wanted to talk about uh, a couple um, things that you've worked on in the past that seem like they have been uh, have become a part of the basketball canon. Um, and one of them is uh, you've done a lot of work on three point defense, um, and basically the idea of of looking at three point percentage as um, as maybe not being a great indicator of team defense that there's a lot of noise in there. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what you found with regard. To, to team defense and three-point percentage? Uh, yeah, I mean, basically the, the short answer is that team, you know, opposing defenses don't really have a lot of control over uh, three-point percentage. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's always like you immediately get challenged by people like, well, what if you, you know, you have to contest threes. Like, what if you stop contesting threes? And obviously if you didn't contest threes, you know, you'd probably give a worse percentage. I mean, you can see that, I think, with the sport view data as well. And yeah, they confirm that. But um, uh, the bottom line is, I mean, I think the, the basic issue is that for the most part, the shooter is controlling, you know, whether he takes a shot or not. And so as a defense, you're, you're kind of affecting that decision. Um, but once that decision is made, once a guy decides to take a three, it's usually because he has the space to actually, you know, get off a three-point shot. And so uh, the ability to influence whether that ball goes in or not is um, not all that great. And, you know, you can confirm that with research at the college level. You can kind of do some out-of-sample testing, split the season between one half and the other, and try to predict the team's three-point percentage defense in one half by what it did in the other half. And you find very, very, very low correlations. Um, now, teams probably do have some effect on three-point percentage. I'm not saying it's zero. But I think for the, like, most of that influence is not contesting shots necessarily. It's more kind of the structure or, you know, other factors going on in the defense. Like, defenses that tend to make it difficult to get easy shots in the paint or defenses that force long possessions tend to have, you know, better than average three-point defenses from year to year. And, you know, you can imagine that the opposing team facing a situation where they're facing longer possessions or they can't get easy shots inside is going to maybe lower its standard for what kind of three-point shot it takes and, uh, and shoot worse. Um, you know, and the other thing is this really applies to, like, kind of teams of similar ability. So, you know, if we scoured the globe and, and looked for the best, like, eighth-grade three-point shooters and had them play a game against Kentucky last season, uh, you know, they would not have made a three-point shot. You know, they would have sucked. 
Um, so we're, we're only looking at, at teams of, you know, kind of similar competition. Even in the college realm, that, you know, that becomes a factor. Like Syracuse traditionally has great, well, very good three-point defense if you look at the whole season. Um, but a lot of that is built up over playing, you know, a pretty weak non-conference schedule, mostly games in their own building. And so they, they kind of humiliate those opponents and are able to, to limit their three-point shooting. But once they get into conference play, their advantage diminishes pretty quickly in that area. And the idea, right, is basically that the best three-point defense does not allow a three-point attempt, right? So that we're uh, – that I mean, it, it sort of runs into the underlying problem of, of measuring defense, that, that the best defensive outcomes are things that don't happen uh, and thus are almost impossible to measure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you could get into a pretty spirited debate on what, you know, like whether it's in general advantageous for you to limit three-point attempts. I mean, for some defenses, I think it clearly is, and, and for others, uh, perhaps it's not. You know, it depends on the strength of, of what you have, you know, on the front line as well. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to – the one thing that a defense has control over is, is, is shot distribution. So if you really want to look at kind of where they're affecting the opposing team, look at, at three-point attempts and not three-point percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing that you've started working on recently is um, is uh, offensive defensive control, which is a really really interesting concept. Um, and and the uh, the underlying question basically, right, is for for these different statistical categories we're looking at for a game, a team, a player, is it influenced more by the offensive side or by the defensive side? Yeah, exactly. So um, you know, it, it was pretty. I thought it's a pretty simple approach. I mean, it could have been a lot more complex, but, uh, you know, just looking at a statistic, you know, say three-point percentage, for instance, and uh, looking over the course of the season, um, you know, you can see that the variance in, like, offensive three-point percentage over a season is higher than it is for, for defense on the team level, which kind of suggests that the offense has more control over it. But, you know, the, the, I went a step further and kind of tried to predict three-point percentage on a, on a game level and kind of run a regression based on a team's, offensive three-point percentage for the season and the opposing defense's uh, three-point percentage on the season and, and see which side of the ball explain more of the variance. And uh, and so, you know, there weren't too many surprising results, I guess, but, you know, naturally the things that, that you'd expect the offense to have control over, I mean, the offense has the ball, so, you know, they should control, you know, I mean, three-point percentage is something that they have a high amount of control over. Even three-point attempts, they actually have a high amount of control over. But there was sort of another factor there where there's, like, there's offense, there's defense, and there's, like, random variance that affects the game outcome. And uh, there's actually, like, much less random variance in, in three-point attempt percentage than there is in, in three-point shooting percentage. So ultimately what I found was that, like, the real battle between offense and defense, I still have to kind of write up a summary on this, but the, the real battle between offense and defense is in shot distribution. Uh, you know, accuracy is, you know, obviously something the offense has control over, but there's a lot of random variance surrounding that as well. So it's really about kind of um, – the shots you take in terms of at least just isolating this discussion to shooting. I looked at a lot more than that, but just looking at shooting, it's about, you know, more of the shots you take than necessarily your, your skill in making them. And then, uh, and pace as well was one of the things that you looked at, right? Cause it's, um, I feel like if you're watching a game, you know, and the, the, um, the media people have their three, you know, their three keys to the game or whatever. One of those things that you see pop up all the time is control the tempo, control the tempo, control the tempo. Um, and so that was, uh, much more in the hands of the offense, correct? Yeah, the offense has a, a, a ton of control over that. Um, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, that makes sense too. Like what, you know, 
I mean, the offense has the ball. The offense wants to hold the ball for 25 seconds. It's hard for the defense to do much about it, especially, again, when you get to teams that are kind of of a similar level. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, especially if you watch the NCAA tournament, it seems like those are the talking points given to, you know, the guys that come over from TNT to do the, the NCAA tournament, the Reggie Millers of the world, and, and uh, of olden time, Steve Kerr, you know, it was like, just talk about tempo, talk about tempo. You know, if you, if you can't think of anything to say, talk about controlling the tempo because, you know, a lot of these guys aren't familiar with the teams. But, uh, but yeah. Because that's, that's like the, the generic template for an upset, right? You're the underdog. You slow the tempo, reduce the number of possessions, so you, you know, theoretically increase variance, and then you take a bunch of three-pointers and jack the variance up even more. Yeah, theoretically, that's the way that's the way to go. It sounds great in practice, but uh, or it sounds great in theory, but in practice, it doesn't you know changing changing one style. I mean, if you already play slow and you jack up a lot of threes, great. But if that's not your style and you want to try to change it for one game to pull off an upset, I think the the benefits uh, you know the cost that way, the benefits in that case. So with all of this work that you're doing, is this something that will eventually feed into your team ratings? Um, Cause it seems like it would, uh, it, it seems like it would impact, um, you know, how you would, how you would rate uh, or, or the, the relative weights of like different offensive and defensive categories. Yeah. You, you, you think so. You think I'd be the- <laughs> I don't mean to put any pressure on. I don't mean to assign, assign homework here. No, that's definitely on my mind. And uh, so, like, the one thing was that, like, overall offense, I forget what the number was, like 64% or something. Like, offense, uh, in terms of efficiency, points per possession, offense is in 64% control of, of the variance of that value. And so you would think that would be useful on a predictive level. Like, right now, I just assume offense and defense have, have equal control and, and – um, maybe ramping up the offensive value would lead to better predictions. Um, I haven't looked at that yet. I mean, the other issue is the pace too. So I have, you know, I break things down into offensive and defensive pace on my site. And when I predict the tempo for a game, I'm just assuming like the overall tempo is the predicted number for a team. Uh, but really I should probably just be looking at the offensive number and making predictions from that. And uh, it's something, neither of those things I've done yet, but as I was writing this series, it's definitely something that I, I, thought about and it's um when i have a, a spare moment or two it's definitely something i plan to look into um it seems like the applications would almost be more useful in like a specific matchup context you know so when you get to pr- projecting an ncaa tournament match uh matchup or something like that where you have the the specific features of one offense versus the specific features of one defense yeah absolutely so uh you know if you have a team actually this came up uh kind of in the preseason ratings this year where you know, I do preseason ratings, and um, there's this uh, guy named Dan Hanner who does preseason ratings for Sports Illustrated who has a little bit more sophisticated approach. And anyway, we disagreed pretty heavily on our project, projection of Baylor. And I was high, and he was low, and, and you know, he mentioned that something he goes into his formula is that three-point defense. You know, they had really good three-point defense last year, and that's probably not going to sustain itself this year. So that would be one reason for, for them to maybe not – live up to expectations and certainly uh that information on a game level i think would be useful as well you know a team that has a really good defense that's dependent on or has been dependent on opposing teams just you know kind of missing three pointers on their own uh that defense is probably not as robust as a defense that has really good uh two-point percentage defense because that's where uh defense has much more control over the action so uh so yeah you think uh you know that would be the the next step I, you know usually these matchup driven type ideas uh, you know, I've had a few of these before, and, and I end up being kind of let down when I try to apply them in real life. <laughs> but, uh, um, 
So, so, uh, just total satisfying my own curiosity here. Do you fill out, uh, a bracket or brackets when it comes to the tournament time? Uh, rarely, very rarely. <laughs> you know, there's not, there's not a lot to be gained from me filling out a bracket. I mean, we discussed the variance issue. And so, you know, if I use the finest numbers in the world, I might have some small advantage over people. But in the end, you know, last year I'm still going to pick Kentucky to win the title, just like the rest of humanity, using an approach like that. So, um, so if I if I do something, it's usually like I kind of like that fun with it. I like to pick a bunch of upsets more than you would reasonably expect. But that's kind of what the tournament's all about. So if I am in one, I'll do something like that. But usually I don't get in one because obviously when I lose, people are just like, "What's going on, man?" I thought. You- <laughs> Well, that's what I was curious about. I mean, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but, um, you know, I uh, I have have very neatly sort of compartmentalized college basketball, and, and uh, I don't think much about analytics when it comes to college basketball, and it's very much just sort of like emotion and, and fun. Um, and so, like, when I fill out my brackets, you know, I try not to look at, at your ratings or stuff at 538 or things like that because I want to just sort of go with my gut and ride it. And so it's, it feels like that. I mean, did you did you do brackets, you know, 10 years ago before you started doing all this stats work and, and the, knowing the numbers and the probabilities has sort of taken the fun out of that part? Uh so, you know, before I really got into analytics, like I, even before I started my site, like if I fill out a bracket, I would, I was, you know, very aware of like Sager and ratings and that would definitely influence what I did. But I never, you know, people ask me like, Hey, how should I use your ratings to fill out my brackets? So I just picked up, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I mean, that's so boring, man. Like just, you know, pick an upset or two, just go with your gut, you know, just, I mean, that's kind of the fun of it. And, and that's kind of how I did it, you know, before I, I started my site. I mean, I was, my picks are, you know, semi-intelligent based on analytics, but then I'll just have, you know, a, a wild feeling about some team and, you know, I'll be uh, as wrong about it as probably the general public is. But, I, you know, I think otherwise, like if you're just a robot going through the ratings and picking a higher ranked team, I mean, what's the fun in that? <laughs> um have you ever have you ever done sort of like retrodictions with your system and seen like you know I don't know necessarily compared to betting markets you know but like how many if you just take the higher uh, if you just take the higher ranked team by your rankings what percentage of, of tournament games would you get right? You know I, I actually have not done that. I, when I'm you know when I'm calibrating my system it's on the whole season so I'm looking at kind of minimizing uh, the margin of or the uh, scoring margin, the final margin of the game, um, you know, the error in predicting that. Um, I mean, every, you know, every year it seems like it's not hard to find somebody writing something about the predictions uh, during the tournament and comparing various systems. I don't, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. I mean, all the systems are, you know, pretty close because they're basically predicting, you know, there's 67 games. They're probably predicting the same outcome for, you know, 60 of them. <laughs> Maybe that's high. I don't know, but yeah. but a lot. You know, there's obviously a lot of first round matchups that are no brainers, or that every system is predicting the same. So if there is an upset, everybody gets it wrrong. If there's not an upset, everybody gets it right. So you're ending up, you know, maybe 10 to 15 games that you're actually judging the systems on. So it's a, an extremely small sample. <laughs> um, 
Cool. Well, uh, I have not had an opportunity to to watch any college games yet this year, but uh, um, I know there's some uh, exciting draft prospects I'm going to have to catch up up on and, and study up on. But uh, who are some of your favorite teams this year, and uh, who's who's looking really good by your early ratings? Besides Kentucky, yeah. So right now, I have Kentucky number one, and actually, I have Villanova number two. Villanova is really a, uh, a you know silent killer in a way. It used to be like people slept on Virginia, but I think people have kind of caught up to the fact that Virginia doesn't have um, a ton of talent necessarily, a ton of high-name recruits anyway, and, and is still a very good team. But Villanova's kind of moved into that role, even though they do have Jalen Brunson now, but uh, um, the, a team that, you know, doesn't necessarily have a superstar that people recognize, but is very, very good. Um, Kansas is right now sitting in fourth. They look very strong uh, out in Maui, um, destroying UCLA last night. So, those are some of the top teams. I guess the biggest controversy in my system is that, you know, Maryland is, is second in the AP poll right now, and they're getting first-place votes, and they're ranked 28th in my system. So they're, they're a team that uh, I make sure to, to watch pretty frequently because they're uh, a very interesting case. Cool, cool. Well, uh, Ken, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk this afternoon. It was a lot of fun, and, uh, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll uh, check in uh, as we get closer to tournament time. Great. Thanks, Ian. I really enjoyed it. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.